0: All right, so today is Father's Day. And at Mother's Day, we had the privilege of honoring the moms and giving them roses. So we thought, what better way to do that than to give the dads roses today? And I'm kidding. There's not a dad in this room. It's like, man, I'm going to talk to that dude afterwards. The moms got roses, the dads, we got gift cards. How we do it? Moms get the petals, dads get the plastic. <laughs> we got five-dollar Chipotle gift cards for all the dads in the room today, just to say Happy Father's Day. Thank you for being a dad. Dads are mocked very heavily in our culture today. Everything, everything. Most of the people are talking are dads. So, shh, shh, so. <laughs> Listen, these, just so we're clear, these are for dads, not people who like kids. So don't, don't walk up and be like, man, I babysat my little brother. Like, we don't care about that. The diapers you change must come from you. So these are, these are Father's Day cards. Happy Father's Day. So if you're a dad, uh, who has these? Just put your hand up. If you're just a dad, here, I have some. Mike has some. If you're, just put your hands up if you're a dad so we can get a card to you. If you don't want the card, bring them back to me. <laughs> These are Chipotle cards, old Mike. We'll hold on to them. Right, this might take a little longer than we thought. Listen, if you are a dad, it's your responsibility. Come see me, Pastor Mike. You got, you got a couple over there? Okay, you handle yours out. Dads to be, yes, that counts. That dads to be counts. Yes. Dads-to-be counts. Not, not hoping to have kids one day. That don't count. I don't want to hear none of that. Dads-to-be putting that work. It's work around here. Man, we not doing all that. Man, come on, man. If you were a dad, you were a dad. If you had stepdad, that don't mean nothing. You were a dad, you were a dad. We not worry about stepdads and all. If you are a stepdad, that counts. You a dad, so that counts. So it's da- if dad is attached to it, it counts. Unless it's my cousin's dad or something like that. Then it's not- Y'all know what we talking about. So trying, you know, it's just Chipotle. Like, go ahead, man. Just Chipotle. Like. But we're grateful, dads. Thank you. Thank you for your sacrifice in a culture where dads are mocked heavily from television shows to media, to there's just this this overwhelming mockery of the role of a dad in culture today. And so it's good to know that amongst this room, in this room, are men who take that role seriously and have taken that role seriously, who have been there for their children, who who remember the season of diapers, who are in the season of diapers. You deserve this if you've taken your kids to the park and one pooped and you walk them back to the car and change them. Then you go back to the park and the other two poop. And you wonder, why didn't y'all poop at the same time? Now I got to go back to the truck. The truck, the car stinks. You stink. And you use the last of the wipes and got a little bit on your finger. This card's for you. <laughs> True dad stories right now. True dad stories. All right, so two weeks ago, two weeks ago, I stood on this very stage, and I made these comments. I said that we are in Romans chapter 7, and that Romans chapter 7 is one of the most debated controversial chapters in the entire Bible in the entire Bible I stand by that statement emphatically Romans chapter 7 in fact the passage that we're looking at today 14 through 25 13 through 25 is the one of the most could be the most but I'll say maybe Revelation probably has something to say about that But this particular passage, Romans 7, 14 through 25, or 13 through 25, is the most controversial, debated chapter, one of them, in the entire Bible. Now, I said this. I said we're not going to get into it for two weeks and some of you groaned. And I like that. That means you want to hear the word. But I did say this. I said that Romans 7 is sort of the... The last of the emphasis in Romans on the law. Like when we get to chapter 8, it starts to transition. The emphasis shifts from the law, which is essentially, we usually say the Ten Commandments, if you want to know what the law is. Mosaic law in the Old Testament. But a better way to think of the law is this. The way to obey God before Jesus Christ. So that's the law, the way, the rules and regulations and all to obey God before Jesus Christ. And then Jesus Christ comes and everything changes. So in the world of the Bible, you have people who are who have for thousands of years been trying to a couple, you know, 1500 years or so trying to obey God a particular way. Jesus Christ comes and then it shifts and says now it's different. Your emphasis, your obedience, things look a little different. And that's the challenge in in the passage. And so for for most of the book of Romans, Paul is, is, is laying out this polemic, this understanding, trying to help us understand that the law, the old way to obey God before Jesus, doesn't work now that Jesus has come. And then everyone needs to switch to the new way to obey Jesus. And some people don't want to switch. They don't get it. Or it's a difficult paradigm shift. Like I said two weeks ago, it's like going to another country where they drive on the right side of the car, or on the other side of the road, and you're just like, whoa, this is crazy. And it really isn't. It's just a paradigm shift for you. It's a paradigm shift. To make it even more simpler, many of us have a particular hand that's dominant. Okay, it's a particular hand that's dominant. So if you're right-handed, right-handed, left-handed, left-handed. Some of us are ambidextrous. If you're right-handed, try writing with your left hand. Or if your left hand, they try writing with your right hand. It's you got to. It it, it works the same as the other hand, right? It's they together, but it's you just. It's awkward. It's not. You don't. The handwriting doesn't look as neat. You got to concentrate a little bit more just to make it look presentable. Or you try eating with your opposite hand. It just is different. Well, this is different for them. So Paul is building up to this point point, trying to say that before jesus christ this is how people were to obey god but it really wasn't sufficient but god allowed it because he knew jesus was going to come and do everything that he wanted done perfectly so now that jesus has come everyone needs to follow this way so this is the rub in this and, then, and this is the last chapter where he really emphasizes this because the emphasis transitions to being about in the spirit. So today we're going to look at this last section of Romans 7. And God, for whatever purpose, felt like this, these verses were sufficient enough to make the point that the way to obey God before Christ is over. But to do that, God gave us one of the most complicated, debated, and controversial passages in the Scriptures. On one side, of this were a fight, now there's a couple different ways that people process this. We're going to look at two primary ways, so this is what we're going to do today. We're going to look at the two primary ways people see this passage and interpret it. Now, if you're on the side of John Piper... And Luther and Calvin, Augustine, who was actually on the other side but then switched to this interpretation of Romans 7. They say that this passage is Paul talking as a regenerate believer. So regenerated by the Holy Spirit, he is a believer in Jesus Christ. And in this passage, he is explaining the the, the dilemma within a Christian for what it feels like when you struggle to obey God. If you're in the other corner, great theologians, one of my personal favorites, modern day theologians, Tom Schreiner, I love his stuff. Magnifying God in Christ was a book that had a profound impact on me and a couple of us. Remember that in 2010 when we read that? I love him. He, he wrote the forward in, one of my, in my first book. I love this theologian. Him and many others are on the other side that say Paul was not a Christian saying these verses. There's no way he can be a Christian saying what he's saying. And then you have God saying that he's definitely a Christian saying what he's saying. Today, we're going to do something a little different. I'm going to lay out both positions. So here's, if you think he's a believer, here's why. Here's how they interpret this passage, another passage. And if you do not think Paul's speaking as a, a believer, is he speaking as himself as an unbeliever, Here's why, and then I'll tell you what I think based upon my study of this. I want to say this first. It's difficult to look at passages like this. Here's the challenge. Because many of us, even if you don't know it or not, have a theological framework. We have a a way that we understand the Bible that's a framework. Even if you've never been trained, never been, the way you understand the Bible is connected to how you've been taught, what you, what you believe about things that have been said, all of it. So our, our framework here is we're essentially reformed. reformed th- there is a framework in the way you process the scriptures when you have a, a framework, and ours is we're essentially reformed. And I believe that that's one of the most faithful ways to understand specifically salvation, how we're saved. Theologically, it's called soteriology. The challenge, though, with having a framework is that we instantly and often import it into the passage. So let me give you an example. In Reformed theology, there is a a moniker or or acronym. And one of this is TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. And one of them, P, perseverance of the saints. Irresistible grace, limited atonement, unconditional election, total depravity. I went backwards. I spelled it pilot. Pilot. All right. And you know what you can do. that. One of the challenges with having a framework is you import your framework into a passage and you dismiss things that it's saying. So prime example, if we look at like Hebrew six, right, Hebrew six gives a very scary warning against walking away from the Lord. It says you've tasted of the spirit, you've been in that, and you see that, and you think if you're, if you're reformed, you think, oh, well, perseverance of the saints, I'm not, that doesn't apply to real believers, and so I don't have to worry about that. And So you import a sort of a theological framework. Now, don't get me wrong, we have to let scripture interpret scripture, but there are times when we read something and we can dismiss what it's saying because of our framework. I believe, real believers can't lose their salvation so this doesn't really apply to me. But the point of writing that verse by the author and by God wasn't so that you could, we could dismiss it because of our framework, it's so that we could look at it and be like, I better be on my toes. I'm not supposed to read passages about hell and dismiss them because I believe that no one can take me out of the Father's hand. I'm supposed to read those passages and think, I better be on my game. I better be on my toes. My my, my reformed framework doesn't remove me from the responsibility of obeying. And so that can make passages like this challenging as we, we import that. Then you have our personal experience. So, I, man, I can I mean, most of us struggle with the parts of the Bible that we can't relate to. When's the last time you read Zephaniah? When's the last time you read Ezra or Nehemiah? Did you know Zephaniah or Zechariah, did you know they're actually books of the Bible? You know, we're not drawn to that, right? Because it's not relatable to me. So what do we read? In the Old Testament, we love them psalms. Oh, I can relate to this. We love them psalms. Father, where are you? It's like, yeah, man, that's how I feel today. Yes. Why so downcast? Oh, my soul. Yes. 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 I'm meditating your word day and night. Nah, I need need to do that more. I need to do that (laughs) a little bit more. We read the things that we relate to, and so we can tend to think the Bible is a book that is supposed to speak to my experience and my experience only. And so we import our experience into a passage and think, I can relate to that. This is what that means, and we have to be careful, particularly those of us who have the responsibility of teaching this because I'm not allowed to do that. But am I perfect? It's it's inevitable. I'm going to do that. The third reason why passages like this are challenging is the way our Bibles are broken up. All right? It was was good over time to put markers and numbers and stuff. So every one of us who has a modern Bible, unless you have one of those cool Bibles that have no scriptures and no markers, so it just reads like a a novel. I do have a mode in my app so I can just take out the numbers, and the headings so that I can just read it. When the scripture, when Paul wrote Romans, he didn't stop after Romans 6, take a couple of months off, write this heading, send it, the to in us, verse 1. No, these people wrote this out to be read as a complete thing. Back in the day, the churches, they would read sometimes the whole letter They wouldn't pick three verses, a main point, and three separate points. to explain what that means. Paul isn't writing this separate. When we read our Bibles, the Bible headings tell us that this is what it means. So depending on your translation, when you get to Romans 14 through 25, it might say the sin in us or the sin in believers. So already you think that's what this means. But our Bible headings are not inspired. They're not inspired by God. The words that were written are, but the headings were just a helpful way to help us in modern day world understand how to read our Bibles by breaking it up into sections. But I would be, you'd be hard pressed to say that this is how it was written in its original form. So that makes it challenging because we don't, I mean, who's going to read the whole book of Romans and then teach it? You're going to break it up. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to, look at, we're going to read this passage and then look at both sides and see what we think. Amen? Amen? We're going to start back in verse 7 and work our way to verse 25 just because we can. Here we go. What should we, what should we say then? I'm reading from the CSB. Is the law sin? Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known what sin is if if it were not for the law. For example, I would have not known whether it is to covet if the law had not said do not covet. And sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Therefore, did what is good become death to me? Absolutely not. On the contrary, sin, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing in me through what is good, was producing death in me through what is good, so that through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure. That was a passage Mike taught next week. Our passage begins right now. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave to sin. For I do not understand what I am doing, because I do not practice what I want to do. But I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. It is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. So I discover this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law. But I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of of my body. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. So here's the question. Is he speaking as a Christian or before he was a Christian? That's rhetorical. If I say survey says, then we'll look to the book. I mean, let's be clear about one thing. The I that Paul is talking about is struggling with sin. That's clear. The question is, is this sin an unbeliever or not? Now, to get a better grasp of this dilemma, let me just give you one major big picture issue to determine this. Or is this description, though we can relate to it, is this description being used in the text to describe occasional sin? Or is it, being, is it describing a definitive position about sin? In other words, do these verses articulate the way we feel sometimes? The way Paul feels? Is this, is this his struggle with sin? Or are they describing a person who cannot make progress in sin? Those are two different things. So we're going to start with those who take the point of view that Paul is speaking of himself as a believer. And here's the first argument that they make. Paul uses a present tense throughout this section, which contrasts the past tense throughout the preceding section. Right, so they're saying that Paul is speaking of himself in the present tense that it's unusual, it's unnatural to speak of himself in the present tense when he's referring to himself before he was a believer. So their point, when you look at, look at verse 14, he says this, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, present tense. So there's a slave to sin, for I do not understand what I am doing. See so talking about right now. Because I do not practice what I want to do but I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is within me, but there's no ability to do it. So they're saying there's no way that Paul's unnatural for Paul to speak of himself in the present tense when he's talking about before Christ. How is that possible? It's a good argument. It's a good argument. Strong argument. The second point that those who think Paul is a believer will say, There, I'm not going to hit every single thing that he said, but I'm going to give you enough so that you realize, okay, here is why this passage is difficult. Just when you think like, yeah, it makes sense to me, make sure you hear the other side first, right? Proverbs 18, 17. The first person presents this case seems right until another comes to examine him. So wait till you hear both sides before you confidently feel like, yeah, I know, how to t- I know what I believe. <laughs> there are people much sharper than us that are still like, I don't know. All right, here's another point. Paul's view of an unbeliever is given in Romans 1, 18 through 320. All right? So Paul talks about the people who reject God, who worship the creature rather than the creator. He talks about the people who are uh, hypocrites in chapter 2, self-righteous, judging other people, committing the same sins. He talks about in chapter 3, all of sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one who does good. So their point is, Paul is describing the life of an unbeliever, but, but a New Testament believer is very different from that. That's not how he would describe a New Testament believer. Now, they they will acknowledge that it is possible that you can, that Paul does speak of people having conflicting thoughts even before Christ. But he's saying this isn't the language that Paul uses of a believer. It's in that language has already been said, and it's pretty dramatic, dramatically different from what he's saying now. Another, and I think this is a very strong point. They say Paul's view of himself before conversion is very different than what he's saying in Romans 7. Say Paul's view of himself is very different than what he's saying. In fact, here's how Paul describes himself in Galatians 1 verses 13 and 14. He says this, for you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy it. Advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. So they say, listen to how he's describing himself. He doesn't sound like he's so sobered by his inability to keep the law. And it gets even more clear when you listen to to Philippians 3, 4 through 6. He says, although, this is what he says, although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So just that verse alone. He says he has confidence in the flesh. And then he says what that confidence is from. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, of a Hebrew born of Hebrews. Regarding the law, a Pharisee. Regarding zeal, persecuting church. Regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. So here's what they're saying. How could Paul be saying stuff like this as an unbeliever? For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I practice I do not want to do. Now if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. So I discovered this law when I want to do good, evil is present with me for in my inner self, They're saying that is a different Paul than the one who said I was blameless before the law. So how could he be talking as an unbeliever when he looks at himself as blameless before the law? We don't hear any struggle of Paul wrestling with obeying God. So there's no way he's talking about himself as an unbeliever. He has to be talking about himself as a believer in this passage. Mm. We continue. Paul says that he genuinely delights in the law. He genuinely delights in the law, verse 22. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law. Some would say an unregenerate Paul would say I delight in the law, but they say because he says in my inner being, there's a sense he's talking about his spirit, his soul. The people who think that, he's, that this is really him being a believer, they think that he's talking about, when I says my inner being, he's talking about having the spirit and wanting to glorify God so much in that spirit that he delights in the law of God. But because of sin, he struggles with being able to do it the way he wants to do it. They're saying unregenerate, Paul would not have said that. He may have said, I delight in the law, as we heard in Philippians 3, but he wouldn't have said it because he was struggling with obeying it. He said, according to his own evaluation, I was blameless, which means I kept the law. I was a Pharisee among Pharisees. The next point for those who think that Paul is a believer, they say that Paul is referring to an occasion of sin and not total captivity to sin. This is one of the most important points because this is where the tension is in interpretation. When Paul is describing this, is he talking about sin as an occasion or is he saying I'm in captivity to sin? If he's saying he's in captivity to sin, well, believers are not in captivity to sin. So is he talking about this as an occasion or as captivity? This is the main rub for many people. Which one is it? So one guy famously says, "A guy that you many of you know well, his name is John Piper. Here's his perspective. And actually... For those of you who joke and say, yeah, we'll get through Romans in like 10 years, John Piper did a sermon on this passage. He did 12 sermons on this passage. Martin Lloyd-Jones did, I think, 16. Talk to me nice. Talk nicely to me. Talk nicely to me. Here's what John Piper says. When I say Romans 7, 7, 14 through 25 describes Paul's Christian experience, I don't mean his steady state experience. I mean that this sort of defeat happens to Paul. For example, when he says, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. He is referring to an occasion in life, not the totality of life or when he says, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, he does not mean he lives in the steady state of captivity. He means captivity happens to him. So when I describe Romans 7, 14 through 25 as Christian experience, I don't mean ideal experience or normal steady state experience. I mean that when a genuine Christian does the very thing he hates, and he quotes Romans 7.15, which says, um, it says, for I do not understand what I'm doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. He says, I mean, a genuine Christian does the very thing he hates. This is what really happened to Paul, the Christian, in moments of weakness and defeat. So John Piper would say he's not describing the, 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 the totality of his Christian life, but moments where he's fighting with sin and wrestling, and he fails at times. He fails. The scriptures didn't cover, it wasn't about Paul's journey of sanctification. So we don't hear a lot about what Paul fought through. We hear a lot about how he suffered. We hear a lot about that in 2 Corinthians 11. He gives sort of a list of all the things that he's gone through as a result of being an apostle in Jesus. But a lot of what he was talking about was not, this is, how, this is what I'm, I have to go after. Here's the struggles that I have. We hear things like, I fought the good fight of faith. I've, I've kept the crown. I've made it to the end. And we don't, we don't know if he means sin or just suffering. But John Piper and others would say, yeah, this is not this is an occasion, not captivity to sin. The next point for why there's belief that Paul is speaking as a Christian is because the Christian life is the theme of chapters five through eight, not that of an unbeliever. So they say one through three is sort of the unbeliever. Chapter 4 brings in Abraham and that we're justified by faith, just like Abraham was. Chapters five through eight means now we're, now we're justified by Abraham. Here's what sort is of the life in a believer. So you got chapter five, uh, death and death in Adam and in Christ. So that everyone's born in Adam, but then Christ comes. And then chapter six and so forth. So they're saying that the Christian life is the theme of verse chapters five through eight, not that of an unbeliever. And if Paul now is speaking as an unbeliever, that it would be odd because the theme of the whole four chapters is the opposite of that. They even say this, that the will that he's talking about is directed towards the good throughout this passage. So he, he says stuff like this. Look at verses 18, 19 and 20, verse 18. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh, for the desire to do what is good is with me. But, I, but there's no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil I do not want. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but sin that lives in me. So the point that they're saying is, look, Paul's will and his desire is to do good. That's not something that you would say about an unregenerate person. A person who wasn't a believer. And then the last point I'll make today for being a believer, they would say is that Paul, or the I, the subject, agrees with the law. He desires the good of the law in the passages we just read. When he talks about it is no longer he that does evil, it implies that he formerly did evil, but now doesn't. He hates sin. He said that can only happen to someone who's born again, who's regenerate. There's no way someone who is not regenerate, who has not had the spirit born him again, would hate sin. They're saying no way. Exhibit A. Now here's exhibit B. The people who say there's no way. There's no way Paul is talking as a believer. There's no way possible. Here's how they start. First, the structure of the passage. This is huge. They said the structure of the passage gives way in what Paul's talking about. So here's what they say when we look at Romans 7, you back up to verses 5 through 6, 5 and 6, you get a clear structure, okay? So he said, this is the outline. Verse 5. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit for death. Okay, verse 6. But now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the old letter of the law. So here's what these people are saying. Those who believe that he's not a believer. They're saying that verse 5 is describing pre-Christian experience. So the language when we were in the flesh and explains that the flesh produced death. Verse 5 is non-Christian, but they say verse 6 is a Christian. Verse 6 refers to Christians in four terms, but now or being released or died to our old life and spirit. So spirit is mentioned. So they so the people who think this is what they think is happening. That and most all commentators do believe that verse five is talking about unbelievers and verse six is talking about believers. But here's what they think is happening. The people who think that Paul is not a believer in this passage think that verse five, he's going to explain his unbelieving life in verses seven through 25. And then verse six is explained in Romans eight, verses one through 17. Now for us, it'll seem like weird, but it's actually a brilliant structure if that's what Paul did. So in verse 5, he highlights, for when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit. And then in verse 6, he describes, well, but we're not of the spirit. We're not of that. So let me tell you what verse 5 was like. And he goes in from through chapter, verse 7 through 25. And he explains what it's like to be under the law. And then in verse 6, verse six he explains what that's like in chapter 8, 1 through 17. So brilliant structure if it's true. So they believe there's no way he's using a diatribe, if you will, sort of a style of communication to show the distinction. The second reason they would say that he's not a believer is that the Holy Spirit is never mentioned in verse 7 through 25. This is Paul we're talking about. This is Mr. Spirit. They're saying the Holy Spirit is not mentioned at all. But in chapter 8, Paul refers to the Spirit 15 times in the first 17 verses. So how is he speaking as a believer in his struggle, but not appealing in any way at all to the Spirit that helps us? But then waits till Romans 8, and it's all about the Spirit. So how in Romans 7 is he saying, I, I hate what I do. The things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I, I, I hate, I do. But the things I love, I don't do. So in my mind, I, how is he saying all that? They're saying, where is the Spirit's work? Where is his appeal to the Spirit? It's absent in this section. But in Romans 8, the first 17 verses, there's 15 references to the Spirit of God and its work in the believer. So how is he saying all this stuff And the Holy Spirit is absent. So they feel like there's no way. They would disagree with John Piper on this point. They think what Paul is describing is total defeat, not occasional struggle. Total. Here's what one of my favorite theologians, Tom Schreiner, says. It says, many Christians throughout history have identified with the despair and the inability of the I in Romans 7. We read verses and think, that's my story. That's my experience. Their insight is right. Their instinct is right. But their interpretation is wrong. As Christians, we are deeply aware of our continued sinfulness and the many ways we fall short of God's will as James says we all stumble in many ways in James 3 2 it's clear the word stumble here means sin so James doesn't say we sin occasionally but that we all stumble and sin in many ways yet that's not what Romans 7 13 through 25 is talking about yes yes We continue to struggle with sin. Yes, we fall short every day. But Romans 7, 13 through 25 is talking about total defeat. As Paul says in the verse, I am of the flesh sold under sin. In other words, he is describing complete and total captivity to sin. Let's read it again through that lens for we know that the law is spiritual but I am of the flesh sold as a slave to sin for I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice what I want to do but I do what I hate now if I do what I do not want to do I agree that the law is good so now I am no longer the one doing it but it is sin living in me for I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh for the desire to do what is good is with me but there is no ability to do it for I do not do the good that I want to do but I practice the evil that I do not want to do now if I do not do what I want to do, all the do's right you get it's like a tongue twister say this fast For if I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do, now, if I do what I want, I do not want, I am no longer the one who does it, but it is sin that lives in me. So I discover this law. When I want to do good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. They're saying this is complete language. I lack the power to resist sin. This isn't talking about on occasion. There's no indication to say that this is occasion. It sounds like Paul is saying, I do not have the functional ability to obey God at best. I can mentally reason that it's good to not sin, but I can't stop myself from doing it. They would say, this is not occasional language. This is not, I struggle sometimes, but God. This is, I lack the ability to do it. I do not, for I do not understand what I'm doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Is that the language of a believer? Okay, you can say, yeah, I can relate to that because we sin and that's how we feel. Conviction feels that way. Condemnation feels that way. What they would say is this is a definitive statement when they say there is no ability to do it. For the desire to do what is good is in me, verse 18, but there is no ability to do it. That's complete and total language. That's a strong point. That's one that trips me up, to be honest. Because I'll just say that it's it's hard for me to read this and think that Paul is speaking on occasion. Another one that they say is the Christian life is one of peace, not inner conflict. What do they say? They don't mean there's no conflict in a Christian. They just mean that there's peace within a Christian, that there's no peace in this. Like there's no, there's no Holy Spirit. There's no sense of hope in this passage until the very end. When thanks be to God, who will deliver me from this wretched body of sin? They say what he's saying, the, 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 the primary language in this is that there's not a sense of peace. There's no hope. And that is not describe a believer. Another point that is made of why this can't be a Christian, Paul speaking of himself as a believer. He says, because Jesus Christ is not mentioned until verse 25, apart from verse 4 in this whole chapter. And the Holy Spirit's not mentioned in the passage at all. But the presence of the Spirit is a distinct mark of the Christian. That's a distinct mark of the Christian. And that is woefully absent in this passage. Woefully absent. So how is he a believer when there's no reference to Jesus Christ? No, but even though I fail, Jesus. There's no hope in Jesus here. And there's no talk of the spirit. And that's his whole point. The point is, the spirit, even remember when Jesus told Peter, when he said, when they went to Gethsemane and Jesus said, pray with me, stay up with me. Jesus was going to, right before the crucifixion, Jesus goes to Gethsemane, tells Peter, James, and John, stay up with me. And he says, that, he says this. He said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So that dichotomy exists. It exists. Without the Holy Spirit. That dichotomy exists. So they would say, Where's Jesus in this passage? Where's is Jesus? Is he really speaking as a believer? And then waiting until chapter 8 or the end of this chapter? They think, No, it's missing. And lastly, Lastly, and I think the strongest point for me personally that that this this argument has, (laughs) that the reason why this cannot be Paul as as a believer is that it completely contradicts everything he said in Romans chapter 6. This would be a total contradiction of what he said in Romans chapter 6. So let's look, at, let's look at chapter 6. It's the first, we're just going to read the first 14 verses. Here's what he says in Romans 6. We spent some good time on this passage. The Lord did a lot of work on us a couple months ago as we went through this passage. It feels like a couple years ago. It says this in verse 1. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body, so the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Since the person who died is freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. Verse 10, for the death, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Verse 11. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey his desires. And do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons of righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under law but under grace. So you mean to tell me that Paul that wrote these words is now as a believer saying, I have no power? Really? Really? Now, if he'd have wrote Romans 6 after Romans 7, it would have made more sense. But he wrote Romans 7 after Romans 6. So you're saying that that Paul who just said that we have power, that we've died to sin, we no longer live in it, is now saying as a regenerate believer that I I have the ability, the desire, but not the ability to do it? It would totally contradict what he's saying about the life of a believer in Romans 6. All of these exhortations Seem to be the opposite of what he's saying his struggle is in verses 14 through 25 if he is speaking as a believer. So from their perspective, there's no way Paul is speaking as a believer. This is Paul as an unbeliever reflecting on his life or or, or actually taking verse 5, Romans 7, 5, and explaining that, what he means by that in 7 through 25 and then taking verse 6 as a believer and explaining what that means in Romans 8, 1 through 17. They're saying, how could the Paul who said, how can we who died to sin still live in it, say that so now, but I am sold as a slave to sin for I do not understand what I'm doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. He's saying this Paul is saying that he basically practices sin. How does that jive with Romans 6? You see, it's not as simple as, oh yeah, that's it, it's that. I can relate to that. The arguments on both sides are compelling. It would be easy to pick a side and stand by it. And after having studied this passage a lot, I had to choose a side as well. I think that both of these options are wrong. I think they're both wrong. And I'll explain why next week. (laughs) Happy Father's Day. Then they're both wrong martin lloyd jones does not think that either of these are what the passage is about i agree with him but my reasons are different i do not think that's what paul was doing at all speaking as an unbeliever or a believer but i'll explain why next sunday i love you guys i love that. You know, my favorite show was 24, and it used to end on a cliffhanger. <laughs> 24 was the first show that me and my wife prayed that the producers would die. <laughs> because it would end, and we'd be like, no, you got to be kidding me. Before Netflix, there was Blockbuster. Remember that, baby? We went and got uh, the six of them. So we'll just watch a couple of these. Watch them six. I took them back and went and got the rest of the season. Remember that? <laughs> look, We'd be up. It'd be 2.30 in the morning. And another episode went off. And my wife would look at me like, babe, we have to go. And I'd be like, why are you saying, babe, you want to watch another one too? You want to, Why are you putting it on me? You want to watch another one too? I know, but we have to go to church in the morning. Babe, we ain't going to hell if we miss church this Sunday. Let's go. <laughs> Said that to her. I was on staff at Covenant Life and did not make it to church that Sunday. We watched 24 till 8 a.m., got us some breakfast, and then we went to sleep. <laughs> I'll explain next week because to try to explain that in a couple minutes wouldn't be a good wouldn't do a good service. But I needed to make sure you understood the tension of this passage because this stuff isn't easy. It's easy to be like, oh, yeah, I think it's that. I agree with that. And then you realize, you hear the logic of it, and you're like, wow, wait a minute, yeah. So what are we doing here? What's happening here? We'll get into what I think next week. And uh, at least Martin Lloyd-Jones on some degree is another heavy word. Having said that, let's sing one more song of worship, and then let's go into communion. And dads, don't forget, come see me and uh, Brother Malcolm, you got some of these? You got these, Dwayne? Oh, you're out? Okay. I got ten here. One is for me. I got nine here. I'm a dad, too. Hold on. One is for me. I got nine here. So we're making sure. Nine here. We'll do we'll do sing a song and then we'll do communion. And then go enjoy your dad.